Well, good morning. If this is your first time visiting with us, we're so happy that you're here. Um, we got a, a gift for you out at the, the welcome table. We'd love to give to you on your way out. And I'd definitely love to get to meet you for just a few seconds. My name's Cody Alvarez. Um, man, but y'all sang beautifully this morning. It, I, I love singing with, with you, church. And it's crazy. You would think the first service, because it's going to have less, because we've, we've went to two services, they still sing too. I, 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 I love worshiping with this body, and I, I just love you guys so much. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time and that he would speak to us. God, you are so kind to us. God, I, I praise you for our church family, the ones who are here and the ones who aren't. And God, I just pray that you would, you would build them up and that you would lift them up and that we would abound in love for one another. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as we look to the word. God, and I pray if there's anyone in here today that doesn't know you, they'd just be struck by your beauty and they'd do nothing else except forgive their life to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will, go to Galatians 5, 16. And we're continuing a series that we've called um, Captivated, because we believe what captivates your heart is the thing you're going to live for, and we want to be captivated by the love of Jesus Christ. Yesterday I was talking to my wife, and we... I, I, I thought of a, uh, uh, maybe a better title for the series would have been uh, Famous Frauds because the, the Galatian church, you know, they're putting forward a, a fraudulent gospel. And we, I started thinking about a fraud. This is a name that you might recognize, uh, Charlie Ponzi. Ponzi immigrated to America in 1903. He stepped off the ship in Boston Harbor, he was unknown and broke. Many years later, after making it big, the Wall Street uh, Journal, they, they, were, they were interviewing him. Oh, I'm sorry, the New York Times. The New York Times was interviewing him. And this is what he said. He said, I landed in this country with $2.50 in cash and a million dollars in hopes. And those hopes never left me. In 1919, Ponzi started a security exchange company where he would speculate and buy coupons or um, stamps from countries that for cheap that he thought would, um, the, the values would increase. So he went to the bank with this business model and they said no, so he, 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 changed, he changed directions and started seeking loans from private investors with private capital so what he did is he created an image among his friends and his acquaintances as a man on the verge of wealth. And if anybody would press him where, where this newfound money came from and where his success came from, he, he preferred not to discuss his fortune in, in, in detail with people. And if pressed, what he would tell them, like any good con artist was, oh, that's a trade secret. He wasn't able to share so how he built his wealth is he would call a meeting of potential investors, whether it was a cafe or a cigar bar or a restaurant, anywhere where he could pile people in. 
And he would come in smooth talking, dressed to the T, looking the part. And he would prime the pump and he would tell the people about this great opportunity. And he would leave them without telling them how that they could get in. And only after victims were coming to him looking for how they could buy in, then he would dangle the bait. And here was his grand plan. An investor within 90 days would receive 50% of their original investment. That's too good to be true. And it was. So Ponzi started, he just started raking the money in. No one had ever seen such success. And then what he did was family, friends, anybody who could get all down the eastern seaboard. If, if you could sell this, he would give you a 10% cut off the top. So Ponzi, what he did was he paid off his first round of investors with the new investments that were coming in. But most of the investors were like, this is great. I got 50% on, in the first 90 days and they just reinvested it. And so he didn't have to pay up. So it worked out pretty well for him. And then after this first round of investments, the, the, the New York High Society, there was a buzz. He was the new financial wizard. And ultimately within that first year, 40,000 people joined. It was just a feeding frenzy. So people, they would reinvest their profits. And, and on July 24th, 1920, so this started in 1919. In 1920, the Boston Post read this, ran this first pay, the, a front page article for him. I mean, this is non-paid advertisement. Double the money within three months, 50% interest paid in 45 days. So it got better. And the Post uh, said Ponzi was worth at that time $8.5 million. In 1920, that was a ton of money. Right now, that's a ton of money. But back then, that was a ton of money. And people were willing to do anything to get rich quick. I mean, if, if we found a, a, some, a deal that good, it'd be hard not to get in, wouldn't it? So... What he would do is he would take money from new investors and then he would pay the, the, the dividends to the, to the old investors. But he actually didn't, he didn't have a product. He wasn't actually buying these coupons or buying these stamps. Finally, one federal investigator looked into bon, uh, Ponzi and it did not take long. And he found Ponzi to be $7 million in debt. He was insolvent. The day that the scheme was announced, six banks collapsed. Ponzi was convicted of bank and wire fraud in 1925. He jumped bail. This is really doesn't go with the story, but it's pretty neat. He ended up uh, going back to Italy and Khan and Mussolini to end up being like a one of his top financial guys, and then he they realized he was a fraud and ran him out too. <laughs> I mean, but this pyramid scheme, we, we know what it's called, right? What's this pyramid scheme called? A Ponzi. It's a Ponzi scheme. And um, it's where you get investors to buy in and you pay off previous investors with the, the dividends of the new investors. There's no substance. There's no product. Ponzi preyed on people who wanted a get-rich-quick style of life. And Ponzi was happy, more than happy, to take their money and to give them an illusion of success. This morning, I would like to ask you if you're living in a spiritual Ponzi scheme. 
Ponzi was okay fooling everyone, creating the illusion of success while being broke. Many of us, we want to put on this illusion of spiritual success while being broke on the inside. We don't want to be a people who trade our inner man. We don't want to be a people who trade the inner life for the illusion of spirituality or the, the delusion that we're walking in the spirit when we're really not. Ponzi had no product. There was no substance to him. When we put on a fake Christianity, that's a Christianity with no substance, and we will end up empty. We see people sharing their empty spirituality from one person to the next. And this, this illusion of spirituality, it's, it's empty. And what it is, what we are witnessing in our country and in our culture is a fraudulent, false gospel. But what do we believe? We believe and we share the true gospel that teaches that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. A gospel that's totally free apart from works. A message that says we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, but by the work of Jesus Christ alone. And we daily are to fight the flesh and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, we're about to look at our text, and if you're a note taker, here, here, here's the what's true statement. The life of victory that was earned by Jesus' blood is lived in the Spirit. And that's, a, that's a, a nice statement, but what do we do with all that? We are to not yield to the desires of the flesh, and we are to walk in the Spirit. And our text this morning will show us how. So let's, let's read together Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So let's look at verses 16 and 17. We'll, we'll, we'll take that as a unit. And we'll, we're looking at what it is to walk by the Spirit. And when you, when you look at walking by the Spirit in, in verse 16, this is, this is, a, this is a, an imperative command. Sometimes we, sometimes we misinterpret some statements, but in the Greek, this is an imperative command. It's not like when your mom says, hey, we got some people coming over. If you, you go, go clean your room, pick it up real quick. That, that's, that's like a, that, she's, she's, she's telling you, but she's also kind of asking you. Paul here saying walk by the Spirit, it's, it's an imperative. It's more like when your mom gives you, that, gives you that look. We all got the look, right? Gives you that look. And like what you don't see is her head spinning a circle going poltergeist. And uh, she said, go clean your room. We, we get it from the inflection, don't we? Go clean your room. That's not an ask. She's telling you, go clean your room or it's going to end up with a spanking. Paul commands the church. He gives an imperative to the church to walk by the Spirit. So why is it an imperative? Is it because Paul's going to discipline us like a mad parent? Or God, he's, he's watching, ready to smite us for some misstep out of the Spirit? No. 
Walking in the Spirit is an imperative command because walking in Spirit is walking in the life of victory. We want victory. We want the life of victory. And victory is something you can't fake. You have to be in the Spirit. You have to be choosing actively to walk in the Spirit. God desires the best for you. Paul desires the best for you. Paul's writing on behalf of God, and he's pleading with you to walk in the Spirit. Look at your text, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's a statement of results. So the the command, if you walk by the Spirit, the command, if you do that, this is what will happen. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Remember, last week we said that our freedom should only be governed by love. Love for God and love for others, and that's going to fulfill the law. When we act out on that, then then we're going to be keeping the law. But our text today shows us that we as believers, the flesh is still alive, the flesh is still active, it's still living in us. And the flesh is these things that, that, that are sinful in us, are those sinful desires. And we must choose to walk in the Spirit, or, again, this is a statement of result. If we choose to walk in the, flesh, in the Spirit, we won't walk in the flesh. And if we don't choose to walk in the Spirit, what will happen? We will walk in the flesh. The, desire of, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit are at odds, and we must choose to yield to the desires of God. Christians and unbelievers who desire to to look Christian, to sound Christian, before they launch into some sort of argument telling me why this lifestyle that they're choosing to do something that we both know is 100% against the will and the word of God, normally they'll say something like this, I finally just had to be true to myself. We've all heard that one, haven't we? I just had to be true to myself. Yeah, you were true to yourself and you chose sin. That's what yourself is going to choose outside of the Spirit. Being true to yourself is not some sort of trump card that allows you to do away with the revealed will of God. Our culture believes that, like, if I'm true to myself, then it really doesn't matter what God says here. No, that's, that's not a trump card. The flesh's desire to sin, it's not of God And that's just the illusion and the delusion that this spiritual Ponzi scheme has that Satan has has allowed you to buy into. He sold it. He sold this bill of goods that if you just follow your heart, it's going to be okay. The other way people justify their sin to me is saying, I just finally had to follow my heart. What's the Bible tell you about your heart? It's deceitful. It's lying. Who can know it? Jeremiah. We don't live in a Disney special. Following your heart will lead to ruin and to misery, and it will ruin the ones you love. I mean, think about those Disney specials, like those those movies. The arc happens when they start following their heart and they start ruining people's lives around them. They just put, put some song and dance to it, and we end up okay with it. Our hearts and desires, unless we are walking in the Spirit, will lead us away from God. That's a big statement. How do I know this? Let's look at our text. 
Lord willing, everything we're saying is being driven from the text. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you want to live a lifestyle at odds with God, follow your flesh. Follow your heart. But stop trying to Christianize it. The American church is so confused. We're, we as a society are so confused because churches have spent so much time calling good evil and evil good that the population, they're just confused. Churches are confused. People are hurt. They don't know what's going on. If you know you're walking in the, in the flesh, don't try to Christianize it. We hashtag Jesus to the end of evil so that we can justify ourselves to, to, to our inner man and to the people we love, and we're just hurting each other. We live in a hashtag culture. Uh, and it's funny, I'm using this as an illustration. A couple of years ago, I thought a hashtag was just something you sent in a text message to be sarcastic. It actually has a purpose. Who knew? I, my, one day I was talking to my wife, she's like, you don't know what that does, do you? I was like, yeah, it's to be sarcastic. She's like, no. It's, what, what it is is it allows through social media to connect things that might be uh, disconnected through titles and, and through, through uh, the, these subtexts. By placing these labels, you, you make a, an umbrella label that all you got to do is click it, and it'll take you to um, similar topics. For instance, like I'm into Texas barbecue. I, I love barbecue, and I can go click and have clicked hashtag Texas barbecue. So, and it took me to a community of people who are talking about recipes, they're giving you tips, they're giving you tricks, and my favorite thing that they're doing is arguing about, can you call it real barbecue if it's cooked on um, electric pit? <laughs> See, you know, there. For, I'll, I'm just telling you now, I'll eat either, I don't care. But some people are, are passionate about real wood or pellets, whatever. But what I see in people claiming Christianity and living this self-indulgent lifestyle or this fleshly sinful lifestyle is that they're hashtagging Jesus to it. And we see them finding each other. We see communities coming together and confusing good Bible-believing churches with their, with their fraudulent gospels. They're empty gospels where they're pretending that their sinful lifestyles are okay. Here's two biblical examples on, on opposite extremes. The first one is the church at Galatia, and the, the other one's the church in Corinth. The, the Galatian heresy is that they were hashtagging Jesus to their sinful desire for legalism because they wanted to control each other. They wanted to say Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus this culture that, that we grew up in, that's how you're really saved. And they're, they're putting, a, putting a weight and a burden on people that God doesn't have on them. And that's, they were hashtagging Jesus to it. That's a false gospel. And you see the other extreme in the Corinthian church is that they were hashtagging Jesus to their immorality and the weird sex stuff that they were doing, trying to prove, like, hey, look how much sin we let in the church. And matter of fact, Paul makes fun of them, calling them super apostles. Like, 
if you read Corinthians and you don't see that Paul's being sarcastic all the way through, just read slower. He's doing that. But he's calling them super apostles. Like, you're not going to allow this, this sinful sexual culture in your church and, and expect me to applaud that. They were hashtagging Jesus to it. The desires of the flesh are at odds with the desires of the Holy Spirit. I saw a meme this last week. It was funny. It said, if Paul could see the church in America, we would definitely be getting a letter. <laughs> Our culture teaches for us true north is when we follow our, our uh, heart and our desire. That's where true north comes for, for, for our morals and our spiritual like lives. Well, again, let's follow that out. And why am I pounding this? Because our young people are being pounded with the opposite. And I'm giving you arguments. 517 is our argument. And look at this. The desire of the Spirit are at odds with the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things that you want to do. The flesh, if you're following the desires, it's going to end in you not walking in the Spirit. And it, it's, it's going to, the results, the fruit of this will be you not caring for your family well. You won't be carrying out the Great Commission. And no matter what you say, you're not going to be honoring God with your life. Walking in the Spirit, on the other hand, will keep you from doing those sinful things that you want to do. Because let's be real. We, the, 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 the flesh is still alive in us. Sometimes we still want to sin, and sometimes we do. But if we choose to walk in the Spirit, the result will look like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. It's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. And doesn't a life marked by that sound a lot better than life marked by the flesh? Maybe in here, somebody in here, they're, they're, they're thinking about their pet sin, or they're thinking about the pet sin of somebody that they love, and they, this is a natural question. You know this, you know this thing is against the, the word and the will of God, and you're like, but surely he would want me to be happy. Yeah, he does want you to be happy, and he does want you to have joy. But here's the thing about happiness. Happiness is like a, the temperature in a room. It's constantly changing with conditions. It's very fickle. Joy. Joy is like a thermostat. Despite the conditions, despite the elements, it's setting the temperature of the room. Yeah, he, he wants you to, to be happy, but he also wants you to have joy. Happiness is fickle, it's fleeting, and it can fool our heart into believing that our lives aren't falling down around us when they really are. Joy is a condition that's not fickle. It's not changed by the environment or our circumstances. And when we make decisions from a place of joy and peace, you're ultimately going to find happiness. Think about things that have delayed gratification, like saving money or working out or dieting. Yeah, it would be a lot of fun to go get a new truck, right? But delayed gratification, if I took that same truck payment and invested it for 30 years, 
what's going to be better? The, the investment, the compounding interest. Same thing with diet and exercise. I love Bluebell. Like, you like Bluebell, but I love Bluebell. The most, I love Bluebell cookies and cream. I love that the most. Please don't get me Bluebell cookies and cream. I, I love it the most. I have no control. It can't be in the house. But I found a new one that's good. It's, it's one of those short-run flavors that they do. It's the oatmeal cream pie. Have y'all eaten that? Hey, you'll hurt yourself. I'm just telling you. It's good. My desire is to eat the whole pint or half gallon every night. I've done it before. I want to stay up late and I want to watch movies and hang out with my wife. And then I want to not wake up early and I want to not work out. And if I do that over and over and over, what's that going to do to my life? What's that going to do to my health? My health is going to deteriorate, right? It's delayed gratification. Denying yourself in the moment for God is not always fun. It's not fun getting out of the bed early. But it's better because it's going to result in you not destroying your marriage. You're not destroying your children. You're not dividing the church. And you're not hurting the ones around you. And we can make this list just go on and on and on. We must actively, daily decide we're going to walk in the Spirit. This is a choosing. The, the, the acts of the flesh make us weak spiritually and emotionally. But the Spirit, when we choose to walk in Him, we walk in strength, we walk in power, we walk in victory. And the Spirit will empower us to live now for the kingdom of God. So that's, that's what walking in the Spirit looks like. Let's look at verse 18, and let's talk about what it is to be led by the Spirit. It says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The Spirit will not... He's not going to tell you, He's not going to lead you to do anything contrary to the, the will and the Word of God. So when you sin, don't blame that on Him. Churches don't like to talk about Him much, and we get a little weirded out because some denominations have been a little weird with them. So we, we, churches aren't, aren't quick to talk about the Holy Spirit. So let me, let's give a, just a quick overview of who He is and what He does. First, He is not an it. He is a He. He's, he's the, the third person of the Trinity. He's not some sort of weird force or weird, weird fog. He has thoughts. He has emotions. And He carries out an important work within Godhead. The Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. We worship God in Trinity, and God reveals himself to us in the Bible as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with three distinct personal attributes without division of nature, essence, or being. Jesus did not come to oppose the law of the Old Testament, did he? We've spent, a lot of, we've spent a lot of time on this. He did not come to oppose the, 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 the law in the Old Testament. Rather, he came to fulfill the law in a way that we never could. And he not only if fulfilled the law, but where the, the Pharisees and the religious teacher, had, where they had taught the law wrongly, one of the, this idea that comes with the word fulfilled is he explained it rightly. That's what, that's what he did. So Jesus and the Father aren't at odds. 
And God is not at odds with God the Spirit. The Son is not at odds with God the Spirit. They're all on the same page, and the law's not bad. Being led, that's, that's, our word, that's our verb here, being led by the Spirit is also being used synonymous with salvation. And once you've been saved, you've been set free from the obligations of the law. We are in Christ, those who are led by the Spirit, and we're not under the law, and we're not under the legal demands of the law because the law has been fulfilled, the law has been, been completed in the person of Jesus Christ. And where we failed, he paid for that, and he paid for our failure. So we're no longer under the law. He, he, he completed that when he died and, and rose again. And as Paul puts it in Romans 6, we are not free to sin now that we are free from the law. We are free from sin. We're not free to sin. We're free from sin. The Jews were in bondage to the law. The, the Gentiles were in bondage to paganism. We were all in bondage to sin. And the Lord has set us free from our bondage with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we are no longer under the law in the Spirit. And we now get to live and glorify the Father. We get to glorify God by keeping the laws. Good theology is done on a razor's, razor's blade edge. You lean too far one way, you're into legalism. That's a heresy. You lean too far the other way, and you're, the, law has, ha, the law doesn't matter. Um, there's, a, there's a heresy for this. There's a name for this. It's called antinomialism. It means no law. No, it's, it's, it's a balance. The, Christianity, the walk of, in Christ is it's on this razor blade. And if and when you sin and you're not choosing to follow the Spirit, this does not mean you've lost your salvation. God's promises will not be revoked when we fail. Praise the Lord, because I fail often. His promises aren't contingent on my ability. His promises are contingent on the work of the Son. And the Son completed the work on the cross. Our works are not our guarantee of salvation, but the Holy Spirit applied to us is our guarantee. Look at Ephesians 1.3. I, I like to, to point us here often because it shows that we've been sealed. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So underline that. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Are we the guarantee of our inheritance? Or is our works the guarantee of our inheritance? Who's the guarantee of our inheritance? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And when we're saved, each one of us is given the Holy Spirit. I, I love this passage because it's the Old Testament talking about this new covenant and the Holy Spirit coming to live in us. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26 on your screen. And it says this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. So that's God doing something to us. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my ruah, I will put my spirit, I will put the, this is the Holy Spirit being talked about in the Old Testament within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And he, 
This Holy Spirit living in you will help you walk in his statutes and he will help you obey his rules. And when, when we are saved, God lives in us. He seals us with his spirit and his spirit is our guarantee that we will receive our inheritance in heaven. So this is redundant, but I'm going for it. Here's the question. Are our works our guarantee? No, the work of God is the guarantee. We come to Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone, and we did nothing to acquire our salvation, and we do nothing to maintain our salvation. So naturally, the, the question comes up, well, what's the relationship between faith and works? Well, James, that's the classic place people go. What's James says, say? He says, I will, uh, I will know your faith by your works. Not meaning your works earn your salvation or maintain your salvation, but it's the overflow, it's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. I mean, let's go, let's go dig a hole in your front yard and we, we, we pop a fruit tree in there. It, let's say the fruit tree's healthy because I, I see somebody killing this illustration, but fruit tree's healthy, we pop it in the ground. With enough time, enough water, and enough maintenance, what will that tree produce? The Holy Spirit's in you. You will produce fruit. If you're in Christ, you are not perfect. Praise the Lord. Now, we've been perfected by Christ in the eyes of God, but that flesh still lives in me. And we're being led by the Spirit. And we're, we're all going to follow to different degrees. Like, I see Christians getting frustrated with Christians because they don't get it yet. Well, Ephesians 1 tells us where, where every spiritual blessing comes from. Where does it come from? Above. It comes from the Father. So because somebody's struggling, because somebody's not where you're at, it would be arrogant to be mad at them for it. Now, Ephesians 6 is going to tell you to bear your, bro bear your uh, burden with your brother. Help them, but we're not to be mad at them over it because we're all going to follow to different degrees. This is the idea of sanctification. It's the process of being holy as God is, being, as is holy. It's, it's the process of looking more and more like Jesus as we live. Sometimes we grow in leaps and bounds, don't we? <clears throat> and sometimes we take two steps forward and nine steps back. God's not done with us when we fail. He's, he's molding us through the work of his spirit into his image. So look at your, your verse uh, 18, and you'll see this verb, led. It's a passive verb. The, the, the first word was a command. It was an active verb. This, this is a passive verb, to be led by the spirit. So what the spirit's doing in us, he's leading us, and we have to walk in his leading. We are being discipled by the spirit in the ways of Jesus. Look, Jesus didn't take those guys, his 12 disciples, and say, know everything I know, did he? Their, their brains would have blown up. You're talking about the God of the universe. Discipleship's not an information dump, but rather what do you ask them to do? Walk like I walk. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship isn't know what I know, it's walk like I walk. I learned to hunt in Arkansas with my great uncle, uh, my great uncle Johnny Flagg. Now, this is the original outlaw Johnny Flagg. 
Like, I'm scared to hunt places because I'm probably doing it illegally. Like, I have to, like, relearn everything I learned whenever I go hunting. But Johnny, he, when I was about 11, took, took me and my brother in, uh, hunting in Arkansas. And he was, a, he was a rough, harsh man, but he loved us. And in the mountains in Arkansas in the fall, there was just piles of leaves. And he would walk through. I mean, he was a little fat guy. He'd walk through, and it wouldn't sound like anybody's walking through. And I'd walk through, and it sounded like a herd of buffalo, <laughs> like just coming down the valley, right? And he would turn around. He'd get so mad at me. He'd gripe at me. And so finally, I figured this out. I would just step where he stepped. I would just put my feet where he put his feet. Now, I was not a good squirrel hunter because I was walking, watching his feet because I didn't want to get yelled at. But what I did learn is how to walk quietly, right? We have to walk following the Holy Spirit's lead. And when we don't, when we make our own way, all we're doing is making a lot of noise. The Holy Spirit, let me... I want you to feel this calm. The Holy Spirit never pressures. He never bullies. He doesn't drive us like a slave master. The Holy Spirit leads. He leads, we follow. He's going to lead us into all truth. Jesus said the, the Spirit would do this. He would lead us in all truth. He leads gently. He leads kindly. He's unhurried. He's understanding. The, the spirit where he meets us and where, where the primary place he leads us is in, in our daily quiet with him. Your my, life might not look like it's marked by the spirit. It may not have a lot of fruit of the spirit right now. Probably because you're not being quiet with the spirit. You're not getting alone with him. Think about how often you stop and ask him daily while you're in his word just to lead you. We are to walk, we are to follow, he's to lead. The Spirit also leads us, not just in the word, but through godly counsel of Holy Spirit taught men and women. The Holy Spirit leads us by gently witnessing with our spirit in our innermost recesses of our being. And this is what we mean oftentimes when we say the Spirit's told us something. He's put some kind of unction or prompting on our heart. He leads us by convicting our conscience. He leads us by, by encouraging us and restraining us from evil. The Holy Spirit leads, but he doesn't drive. And we can miss his leading, and I know I do often. And most often we miss him, because he doesn't speak with a megaphone. He speaks in the quiet. And we as a people, me as a person, are we not very averse to quietness? We're very averse to slowing down and turning off the TV and turning off the phone. Our minds wander quickly. We want that next dopamine hit of that, that like or that share or that message. I told you last week, my aspiration for us as a people is that we would be a people who walk in the power 
of the Spirit. And if that's the case, we need to be a people who practice being alone and being quiet with God and giving Him room to lead us and to speak to us. So here's, here's my challenge for you. Every day over the next week, set a time to be alone and be quiet with God. Read your Bible, pray. These are things I assume most of us are doing. We're, we're being, being silent, we're, we're being alone, we're, we're, we're praying. But while you do that, after you do that, say the words of Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Maybe we don't hear from the Lord because we're not silent in front of him. We, we go, we tell him the things we want him to do. We read the, the Bible real quick and we check that off the box. We close it and we start getting the babies dressed for school. Set a three-minute, five-minute, ten-minute timer and just sit there with him. Your mind's going to run. It's okay. Bring it back. Tell the Lord, here I am, Lord, I'm listening. And I think what you're going to find is going to be really powerful. You're going to find the Spirit convicting you of sin. You're going to find the Spirit saying, hey, you need to call Billy. Matter of fact, that happened to me this morning. I called Billy. His name's really Billy. Really Billy. And he answers the phone, and it's early, and he's already crying. His heart's heavy. Like, we miss all these opportunities. We miss being led because we're not quiet and we're not asking. So that's my challenge for you. Every, along with your normal quiet time, set a timer and just sit alone with the Lord. I say set a timer because if not, like that first 30 seconds is going to be like, man, I've been here for an hour. And your mind's just set a timer. It'll, it'll ding. You can go about your business. And you're going to see the Spirit moving in you and you're going to have opportunities to follow his leading. So I, I practice something much like this every day. The life lived in the Spirit is a learned thing. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. It takes time. It's a challenge. We have to learn to live totally dependent on the Spirit. And we can't walk in the Spirit without the Spirit empowering us. That's, that's confusing. I think a good biblical illustration is uh, Peter. Um, remember Jesus, he's walking out on the water in the storm. And Peter wants to go to him. So Peter steps out. Did Peter, was Peter able to walk on the water by himself? No. Did, did Peter, it was totally dependent on Peter going to Jesus and Jesus enabling him to come. And then what happened when, when Peter took his eyes off Jesus? He sunk. And that's much like what it, walking in the Spirit is. When we keep our eyes on the Spirit, when we keep our eyes on the Lord, we walk in victory, empowered by Him to follow Him. But when we get distracted and we choose to stop and walk in the Spirit, or, I mean, here's the most dangerous things for believers, just being distracted. Peter didn't sin. He got distracted. But, I mean, I'm telling you now, during worship, worship was getting it today. And guess what? I was thinking about Chewy's. Like, we get distracted. And then we get out of the moment. 
And we have to be quick to turn our eyes back and to follow. Or we, like Peter, are going to sink in our flesh when we stop listening and waiting for the Lord. So let's, the band's going to come forward, and I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads. And the challenge this morning is that we would walk in the Spirit. And it's two-part. It's, it's, it's walking, it's choosing, like, I'm going to walk in the Spirit today. Lord, please help me walk in the Spirit. But when He does lead, choosing to follow. And maybe today you're a believer in the room and you've not made a conscience effort to follow, to, to walk in Him. Maybe right now just say, God... Help me, walk in, help me walk in your spirit. Help me follow you. But maybe you're here and the Spirit's been leading you to do something and you've not been following in that thing. Whether it's baptism or right now maybe it's he, he's showing you that Jesus died on the cross for you or maybe it's whatever it is. Just give it to him right now. Repent. When, when um, preacher he he was asked like, man, I just fail so much. I just fail so much. I sin so much, and the preacher's response was, well, that's if you sin ninety nine times, that's ninety nine times that you get to repent and go back to the Father. It's ninety nine times that all the angels in heaven are going to rejoice over a sinner who's returned. Take this time this morning and rejoice in your Savior. If you don't know Jesus, you can be standing right up here, and I'd love to talk to you about that.